Hello, this is Dr. Stephanie Hack, the Lady Parts Doctor, and welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor podcast. As usual, I am so excited that you are joining me today because I love it when we chat and we've had so much to chat about. So if you remember last week, we spoke with the founder and CEO of Worthy Well Co, Ms. Shelby Renee Giles, and we had a really organic, awesome, interesting conversation about beginning your journey. And I hope that in your own journey, in your own life, that just caused some reflection for you to reassess, reevaluate where you are, and hopefully confirm that you are where you want to be. And if for some reason you aren't, gave you just a little incentive or a little extra push to make some steps in the direction you want to be headed in. Otherwise, this week we're talking about fibroids. Can you believe it's actually Fibroid Awareness Month? And we have been talking about so many things that we haven't talked about this. And fibroids are a big thing. They're really common. They're something that many of us have experience with, like it or not. So something that we should devote some time and conversation to. And I think this actually is going to be a long conversation, which is fine. There's so much to cover regarding fibroids, and I'm only really scratching the surface. But again, remember, I'm not giving you medical advice. I'm giving you information, information that will lead you to have a continued discussion with your healthcare provider, or at least information that will cause you to do some research on your own and be more uh, well-versed in the topic and feel empowered to make some decisions or at least initiate some conversations on your own health journey. So I remember the first time I found out I had fibroids. I went to my GYN for severe cramping. It was so random, it was so extreme that I was always carrying a little bottle of pain medication with me. Like I had a little bottle of Motrin in my purse. I remember back before I got married, being out on a date with my husband and we were in a restaurant. I was hit with some pain so severe. And I had had an IUD placed about a month before I started experiencing this pain. And so my GYN, who placed the IUD, sent me for a pelvic ultrasound just to confirm that the IUD was in a proper location that was in the right place. So the sonogram technician is doing my ultrasound, scanning my uterus with a, a transvaginal probe, and she kind of just nonchalantly mentions, oh, you know, you got two fibroids ranging from like one centimeter to three centimeters. Um, excuse me? Now what now? What'd you say? <laughs> that was my reaction. As a first year OBGYN resident, I knew a lot about fibroids, right? I had spent a lot of time reading and researching. I knew they grow large, they cause bleeding, and we remove them into story. And while my periods weren't ideal, they hadn't really changed much since I was a child. So where do these fibroids come from? First, what are fibroids? Well, many of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you might be wondering, like, what is a fibroid even? Is this something I should care about? Fibroids or leomyoma, they're benign masses of smooth muscle cells and connective tissue, and they're most commonly found in your uterus, although they can also grow in the ligaments that support your uh, uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries, but most commonly you see them in the uterus itself. And inside the uterus, they can be found in the cavity, 
So inside the uterine cavity, they can be found in the walls of the uterus, and they can also be found growing attached on the outside of the uterus on stalks. Sometimes they're very small and skinny little stalks, sometimes they're thick, big stalks. Fibroids can grow alone or with friends, and they range in size from just millimeters to more than 20 centimeters. I remember as a resident physician taking out a fibroid, uh, just it was one large fibroid that was about 30 centimeters. And that's crazy to imagine when you consider that the average size of the uterus is about seven or eight centimeters. So this thing was about almost four times the size of what her uterus should have been, if not more. How common are fibroids? And that's the thing about fibroids. They are very common. They are so common, in fact, that a study of over 13,000 premenopausal, which means still menstruating, still having their periods, women showed that over 80% of black women and up to 70% of white women had developed fibroids by 50 years old. Like, that's pretty common. In fact, the same study concluded that most black and white women in the United States will develop fibroids before menopause, with black women developing them at earlier ages than white women. And since only about 25% of women with fibroids have symptoms significant enough to require treatment, they may be even more common than that, even more common than we know. A little fibroid that's not causing any problems is probably gonna go undetected right? Because you're not having any issues. You wouldn't even notice unless somebody sent you for an ultrasound. But <clears throat> they don't seem to be as common in Asian and Latino women as white women. But we still need more data, right? We still need more information. So what's up with black women and fibroids? For all my black women, many of us know what fibroids are because you have a mom with fibroids, a sister with fibroids, a cousin with fibroids, a friend with fibroids. As we mentioned, fibroids are more common in black women and they start at earlier ages or they start growing, they become evident at earlier ages. Black women also seem to have worse symptoms with their fibroids. They have significant differences um, in how their fibroids present, the severity of symptoms, their treatment, their outcomes, and their quality of life. And it seems that much of this is related to the systemic racism that black women face every day. And if you've been listening to the podcast series, we've talked a lot about the different ways which racism makes its way into healthcare and how people are treated, how they are diagnosed, um, how they are really just cared for. So this may keep, the systemic racism may keep black women from going to the doctor to begin with. And then when they do present, their symptoms may be even more advanced okay, or they may receive different care and treatment than their counterparts. More research is needed to make sure that black women receive care that optimizes their outcomes and quality of life, just like all other women. And so with that, you know, sometimes it's just, I was recently having a conversation with a woman who was not black, this was a white woman, who was talking about her own experience with fibroids and the resistance that she encountered with her GYN, also a young white woman, and how the woman did not want to send her for an ultrasound. She was experiencing symptoms. Um, I think we talked about this story in Medical Gaslighting, if you listen to that particular podcast or watch that episode 
But the doctor didn't really want to do an ultrasound. Um, and I think eventually, because this particular woman as a patient, she was a PhD, she was very well informed, and she was able to advocate herself. She finally got the ultrasound, and lo and behold, she had fibroids, as she suspected. So there are a lot of different barriers um, for various reasons to discovering this, but we have more work to do, right? We need to improve the health outcomes of everybody, especially those who have been uh, systematically disenfranchised. So what are the main causes of fibroids? We don't know the exact cause, but they seem to be linked to hormones. Risk factors for developing fibroids include obesity, family history, never having children, starting your period earlier in life, so that's also called early menarche, and um, having your period, your last period, later in life. So that would be late menopause. What are the symptoms of having fibroids and how will you know if you have them? Symptoms can present in various ways. And each of these stories, I'm gonna go through a few stories of a woman's experience, but they're going to show just different ways that fibroids present and symptoms that women have. So first, first comment. Hi guys, I'm 30 and feeling kind of down after my recent, recent fibroid diagnosis. Glad it's nothing serious, but it's largest at seven centimeters. Honestly, didn't even know I had it until recent checkup, but it showed up large and clear on ultrasound. I know where she's coming from with that. Now, I'm left wondering what to do about it. It has no real impacts on my life. My periods are regular and on the light side. It's not impacting my bladder, doesn't get in the way of sex or exercising. The only negative that I can tell is that I have a, a bit of what I think is a fibroid belly. Although honestly, I am a bit overweight and I do store it around my hips and midsection. So who knows if it's a fibroid pudge or holiday cookies. I will say I do have a bit of a mm, protruding stomach right above my pubic bone. But again, unsure if that's just chub or my enlarged uterus pushing things outwards. Regardless, at this point, doing something about it seems like cosmetics. I'm not happy with how I look, but I'm on week two of dieting and exercise, so I'm working on things. The fibroids thrown me for a loop here, though, and really hit my self-confidence hard. I feel pretty unattractive, and now I'm wondering if I'll ever shed the weight without removing the fibroid. That was from a Reddit user, um, Essie is what we'll call her. Uh, here's another, another patient experience or another person's experience with a fibroid. I'm 46 years old. I have polyps and fibroids. It's pretty excessive. My periods are extremely heavy and last anywhere from 10 to 17 days with cramping starting about four days beforehand. So it's taken a toll on my life. It's depressing and frustrating, and I often have to cancel plans or work. So this is another Reddit user. And you can see those are two very different experiences based on symptoms with fibroids. And we, as physicians, you know, for me as an OBGYN, I've interacted with both patients. People have been like, that's oh, not really a problem. And people who have been really frustrated and have really had the fibroids impact their lives. So there's something that we want to treat. So the most common symptoms are heavy or prolonged periods, bleeding between periods, abdominal discomfort and or fullness, pelvic pain, lower back pain, bladder symptoms like frequent urination or difficulty fully emptying the bladder, 
or bowel symptoms like constipation or excessive straining with bowel movements. And these last two symptoms, the bladder symptoms and bowel symptoms I discussed, are what we commonly describe as bulk symptoms because they're caused by the bulky uterus interacting with and compressing your other pelvic organs like your bladder and your bowels and your rectum. Do fibroids cause weight gain? They can. Large fibroids or multiple medium-sized fibroids can weigh a couple pounds and cause you to gain weight. They can also lead to menstrual bloating and constipation, which contributes to weight gain. When should you start to worry about fibroids? When you start to experience symptoms related to your fibroids, it's time to be evaluated. Evaluation includes a thorough medical history to obtain more information about your symptoms and an abdominal exam. You know, we we need to touch and see how are we able to feel these fibroids just by pressing on your belly. It also includes a pelvic exam, which will involve a bimanual exam. During the bimanual exam, your healthcare provider, your OBGYN, will place two fingers inside your vagina and then another hand on top of your abdomen. And so that's so we can really get your uterus in our hands to feel the shape. Does it feel like a normal size shape uterus or can we feel bulky fibroids or masses protruding? You know, that can indicate the presence of fibroids and other pelvic masses that need to be evaluated further. The bimanual exam also allows us to better assess pain you may be experiencing in your pelvis. Sometimes you know someone has fibroids, you put your hands on their belly, you're doing the bimanual exam and you feel the uterus and they don't really feel anything. You know, they might say, oh yeah, that's, you know, the, I can feel that um, fibroid when I touch my belly, but they don't feel anything otherwise. Sometimes you can do that same exam and you can press on the fibroids and people might feel pain or discomfort. So the bimanual exam is really important for that. Other parts of your evaluation could include blood work to check for anemia and imaging like an ultrasound, an MRI or a CT scan to really figure out exactly where those fibroids are to measure their size and again, check their location. What is the best treatment for uterine fibroids? Oh man, there's so much to discuss here. So really that depends on your age, your symptoms and your symptom severity, your medical history, and whether you want to become pregnant. Treatment options include expectant management, medical management, interventional and surgical therapies. Being close to menopause or not desiring pregnancy allows certain options that desiring future pregnancies does not. Finding the right option for you involves shared decision-making where you're going to review with your healthcare provider what's available and together decide what is right for you and where you are at this point in your life. And remember that may change. You may start saying, I wanna try this, find that that doesn't work, or maybe your circumstances change and another option might work better for you. So let's go through the options. First, we have expectant management. That's always an option, although not always recommended, depending on your symptoms. Expectant management is basically watching and waiting. It's only for people whose symptoms are not severe and don't affect their quality of life or people who decline intervention. If someone wanted expectant management, for their fibroids, and they're talking to me about this, I would just review concerning symptoms, things to look out for, and then suggest we reevaluate together at a certain point in the future, whether that be six months, 12 months, etc. But you know, we're gonna come back to it, reassess, do another exam, see how they're feeling, maybe do more imaging. 
Medical management is usually our first line of treatment and can range from medications typically used for birth control to medications that are going to stop your ovaries and place you in a temporary menopausal state. So certain liver and adjustral releasing IUDs, specifically Mirena and Liletta, have been proven to decrease menstrual blood loss in women with and without fibroids. While the risk of IUD, intrauterine device, expulsion is higher in those with fibroids, so that's up to 11%, a significant reduction in blood loss is expected by three months, which is great, especially for people who are having really heavy bleeding. For those who don't desire IUDs, not everybody wants one, combined hormonal contraceptive pills um, or progesterone-only, progestin-only pills, excuse me, are also thought to decrease menstrual blood loss. And although there's not as much data to support their effectiveness, that's also an option that can be tried for people who are having heavy bleeding from their fibroids or what we think is related to their fibroids. The progesterone shot, Depo-Provera, also decreases menstrual blood loss. Certain medications called gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists, GNRH antagonists, that's a short uh, abbreviation for it, they work by decreasing ovarian production of hormones like estrogen. And these medications are used up to two years and place your body in a menopausal-like state or a menopause-like state, which leads to decreased blood loss. So if you remember, menopause is, after menopause, you're not going to get a period anymore. So that's what I mean when I say a menopause-like state. GNRH agonists work similarly to GNRH antagonists, also decreasing ovarian hormone production. They can also lead to a decrease in fibroid size when you use them one to six months and can be used even longer with add-back hormone therapy. And Both agonists and antagonists have similar side effects such as headache and hot flushes, which can be somewhat improved with add-back hormone therapy. Tranexamic acid is a non-hormonal medication that works by preventing breakdown of fibrin, which also decreases menstrual blood loss. The only limited data exists. It's also thought to decrease blood loss in people who have heavy bleeding related to periods. So those are our most common medical Um, medical options, medical management options. What about procedures and surgeries? So for the minimally invasive procedures, uterine artery embolization, UAA, or, or uterine fibroid embolization, you may have heard it called, it's a procedure in which the blood supply is decreased to the uterine arteries. The uterine arteries bring blood and oxygen to your uterus. It's typically performed by interventional radiologists, and it involves introducing an embolic agent through a small catheter in your groin to obstruct your uterine arteries, to block the amount of blood that's flowing to your uterine arteries, and therefore your uterus is going to get less blood flow and the fibroids and your uterus are going to decrease in size. This procedure leads to Um, results with a decrease in size of your uterus and your fibroids, which can last up to five years, which is awesome. It's a great option for those who are closer to menopause, um, but those who are further away may require a repeat procedure or may ultimately decide to have a surgical option performed instead. There is not a lot of information regarding UAE, uterine artery embolization in pregnancy, but it has been associated with an increased risk of pregnancy loss, cesarean section, and postpartum hemorrhage as compared to expectant management. 
So a newer therapy, radiofrequency ablation, that can be performed laparoscopically. So that's like when they put um, the camera through your belly and do everything with little tiny incisions on your belly, operating from the outside. That uh, It can also be performed transvaginally, so through the vagina, and transcervically, through the cervix, to target fibroids and cause cell death, death of the cells within the fibroids, that ultimately decreases the fibroid size and improves the quality of life. Focused ultrasound works similarly. And again, data on reproductive outcomes for both of these interventions are limited. Now, here are the more invasive procedures. Myomectomy is the surgical removal of fibroids, and it can be performed in a lot of different ways depending on the size and location of your fibroids. It's an option for people who want to preserve their uterus. Fibroids can be removed via hysteroscopy. Um, That's hysteroscopic technique. With hysteroscopy, we basically put a camera inside um, through your vagina into your uterus, and then we can look inside the uterine cavity. And that's considered minimally invasive. The myomectomies can also be performed laparoscopically, which is more invasive, again, with the camera in your belly, uh, robotically, which is similar to laparoscopy, or the abdominal technique, which is the most invasive, and that involves making a bigger incision on your belly to be able to look into your pelvis, see your uterus, and remove the fibroids. Having fibroids removed can greatly improve the quality of life for some. Hysterectomy is the definitive treatment of fibroids. Hysterectomy is the removal of your uterus altogether. And once your uterus is removed, you will no longer have the ability to grow uterine fibroids, thus eliminating your fibroid symptoms. You will also no longer have periods eliminating heavy periods. This is great, right? It can be performed through the vagina, laparoscopically, or abdominally. And the technique for removal really depends on you. There are multiple factors. Um, They're including, but not limited to, the size of your uterus and your surgical history. So it's best discussed with your healthcare provider. The goal, the ultimate goal when you're picking a technique is to provide the least invasive option possible. And remember, all of these things have risks associated with them. And we're not going to get into the risks in this podcast, but this will be a discussion with you and your healthcare provider. So what happens if fibroids go untreated? Like, okay, so I have fibroids. What if I just choose not to do anything about them? If you're symptomatic, you may experience increased growth of your fibroids and worsening of your symptoms. If you're asymptomatic, meaning you're not having any symptoms at all, you may not experience any changes and you may just go about your life and one day you'll go through menopause and you won't ever think of your fibroids again. So it's really an individual thing. Can fibroids affect my pregnancy? While most people may be unaffected, fibroids can affect pregnancy in many ways. They may grow during pregnancy due to the significant increase in hormones like estrogen. They may also decrease in size after pregnancy once the hormone level de- uh, hormone levels decrease. And I will tell you, I had my own little fibroid. For, I have, I should say, because still with me, um, who... When I had that ultrasound I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it was about, I think they said it was three centimeters and it grew to about 10 centimeters, even more when I was pregnant with my first child. And then after it 
went back down in size, back to three centimeters, uh, to the extent that sometimes it was even missed when I had ultrasounds. And then, you know, now it's just kind of steady, not really growing. It outgrew its blood supply and kind of like died. So it's just there, not growing, but it's just with me. And so that's something that can happen during pregnancy. In the first trimester of pregnancy, if you have fibroids, they're associated with bleeding and miscarriage. In the second and third trimester, they're associated with pain and preterm delivery. During delivery, large fibroids that are located near the cervix can make vaginal delivery difficult, if not impossible. And sometimes you just end up having to have a C-section. I've had patients have to go through that experience because they've had large fibroids in their cervix that there was just no way these fibroids were going to allow a 10 centimeter baby head to pass past them. You know, they weren't going to do that. Um, Also, they can affect the movements of the baby and they're associated with, or at least they're a risk factor for a a breech baby. I also have experience with that, personal experience with that. Postpartum, they're associated with an increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Do uterine fibroids ever go away? They can decrease in size and essentially go away. That can happen. It's not a pipe dream. Can fibroids turn cancerous? Fibroids are mostly benign, and it is unlikely that they will go through cancerous changes, but only about one out of 350 women with fibroids will experience malignancy, so it's unlikely. And that, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone who is listening, that is our discussion on uterine fibroids this week. So that was a lot of information to process. If you have questions, if there are certain things that you want discussed more, please do not hesitate to email me. Or if you have um, your own stories that you want to share or ideas for another podcast, please, again, email me at drhack at ladypartsdoctor.com. That's D-R-H-A-C-K at L-A-D-Y-P-A-R-T-S-D-O-C-T-O-R.com. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe to the blog, the podcast on Apple Stitcher, Audible, iHeartRadio, Amazon, TuneIn. I feel like I'm leaving something out, but... You know, basically you can find the podcast almost everywhere you listen to podcasts, subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, follow my IG, which is uh, Lady Parts Doc, as a D-O-C, Lady Parts D-O-C, Twitter, everything. And let me know if you have any questions, stories, or ideas again. Until next time. Mm-hmm.